Welcome to It's All Political, the San Francisco Chronicle's political podcast. I'm Joe Garofoli, the Chronicle's senior political writer, and today our guests are the co-founders of Indivisible, Leah Greenberg and Ezra Levin. Indivisible, as you remember, popped up in the scene right after President Trump was elected and exploded in popularity. Millions of members, 5,000 chapters nationwide, including probably more than 200 here in Northern California. Now these guys have got a new book out called We Are Indivisible, a blueprint for democracy after Trump. But they're not so sure that Trump is going to lose. That's going to take a lot more of the kind of grassroots organizing that flipped the House in 2018 into Democratic hands. Ezra Levin, Leah Greenberg, welcome to It's All Political. Welcome to the city of St. Francis here in San Francisco. Thank you for having us. You are a, a, a... your new book is Indivisible, A Blueprint for Democracy After Trump. We're, we'll get to that in a minute. Yes. We're, we're going to walk down Indivisible memory lane for Great. a few minutes. Because yeah. we we start talking at the very... The very beginning of all of this. Yes. You were there from near the beginning of the movement. Yeah, yeah. And uh, back in those days, to for those who are unfamiliar with the origins of Indivisible... Uh, you guys were Capitol Hill staffers and married, correct? That's correct. Married. Yeah. You've been still. Mar- I, mm-hmm. You're yeah. still married. You were married. <laughs> Tell us about, like, we have to have a little marker here. What was your first uh, your first date or your first? Uh, yeah, our first date was the weekend that healthcare passed, the Affordable Care Act passed in March of 2010. That's how we, because we are DC nerds, obviously we. Nerdiest, <laughs> nerdiest origin story of every year. <laughs> we celebrated after that. Significant other, affordable healthcare for all. I mean, you can't beat it, really. <laughs> I love that. Okay, so, and you were, you're pissed off that uh, President Trump was elected and you wanted to do something about it. So you start, you pull together this 24 page memo that was about how to sort of push back on members of Congress. And, uh, and and how to go to constituent meetings and how to call members of Congress, sort of a DIY about how to organize that. It was activism for dummies almost. I think I actually wrote that back in the day. And you said it was very practical. It's like, you know, this is a line from the book or the, um, the memo. Sit by yourself or in groups of two and spread out through the room. This will help reinforce the impression of broad consensus. So it was, it was very granular. And the premise... Leah, what was the, the premise of all this? The members of Congress don't do anything unless... Well, the premise of the original Indivisible got document was that we were all very upset about Donald Trump being elected. But fundamentally, Donald Trump wasn't going to care what we thought. Mm-hmm. That said, your elected officials, your one member of Congress and two senators do care very much what you think because you are how they get reelected or lose their next reelection. Mm-hmm. And as a constituent, you have powerful tools to shape their incentives. And that's everything from how you organize to what you ask for um, that can actually change how they think about their political future and what they should do. Mm-hmm. And so the guide was really just about telling you how you could apply your political power in order to shape what your representatives did. And uh, and so you back then, when what did you expect to come out of this in those early days? Look, like, I mean, part of this was for our own emotional health, right? We were going through the stages of grief. We had landed on anger. We didn't want to just stay there. We wanted to do something. And we had hoped that there would be some sort of pushback against Trump. We were scared that what we were seeing at the national level was even Democratic leaders were saying, well, we lost the election. Let's just make deals. And we thought, no, we can say no. So we that the vision for success for the indivisible guide was six months later, somebody would tweet at us, hey, I went to a town hall, used your guide and really asked some hard hitting questions of my member of Congress. That would have put us over the moon. Um, And so we were shocked with 
that not only the people read it, but then they actually started putting it into action. It was amazing. It was, I mean, for the for some raw numbers on that, it's it, it, my last kind I, I checked was two million times it was downloaded or probably more than that. At this point. Yeah, millions of times downloaded. I think that the shocking thing. So we were just overrun with emails and, and messages from all over. And they all said the exact same thing, which is this this Google Doc is full of typos. And and <laughs> and. And, and then they said, hey, I got a dozen people together and we're indivisible Syracuse or we're indivisible East Tennessee or we're indivisible, you know, San Francisco. Um, and uh, so, yes, you can if you want something hobby edited, just put it online. If it goes viral, people will be very good about that. But again, the, the shocking thing was that people weren't just reading this thing. People weren't even just, you know, tweeting about it or starting Facebook groups about it. They started showing up in person and not just in uh, uh, city centers, not just in blue areas, but in you know, East Tennessee, in Alabama, in Trump country, New York, there were these indivisible groups that started forming. And then they started asking us, hey, we're getting together this Saturday. What, what should we do? And they, uh, I, I saw this in person, uh, you know, here in uh, Tom McClintock's district, yep. one of the mm-hmm. one of the most, the reddest districts in California. People showed up there uh, uh, with their zip code on, on name tags mm-hmm. because, yep. because one of the early criticisms was this is a an astroturf group yes. funded by George Soros, <laughs> which at that time it wasn't. But right. you, it, it, to and now be fair, it is, now, yeah. now you, it's, yeah, no, it but became, it's four percent of your. It, it's like it's a yeah, it's a small percentage of the overall budget. And the single largest source of funds is now and always has been online donations, grassroots yeah. donations. But how much does it cost? Of what's your budget at this point? Our budget early this days, year, you guys weren't making any money. You weren't even taking no. We, salary our, our, at the time when uh, the the right wing was accusing us of being uh, source funded astroturf, I think our number one expense was pizza and mm-hmm. t-shirts for the volunteers, which we paid for <laughs> out of pocket. Um, but uh, and, and it became something of an inside joke um, with within the movement. People were actually showing up at protests with t-shirts that said, George, where's my check? Uh, which I thought was really hilarious. <laughs> Um, no, now we're a full-fledged operation that's national. We have 86 full-time staff spread around the country. Oh there are state leaders um, who are full-time indivisible employees whose job is how can we make the groups in this state as strong as possible. Uh, so it's been a real whirlwind adventure these last three years. And, and Ballpark, we're thinking about a million members? Nation? Oh, more than that. More than yeah. that. Oh, more than that. So million. we we – um, the the best so part of this we know because they're on our email list, they're on our text uh, text list, they're on our you know Facebook, et cetera, and that's somewhere one and a half to two million. Part of this though we don't know, which is the movement is distributed. It's not command and control. It's not that you signed up for Indivisible and now we have you. And so there is a um, we we know who is on our list, and then we also know many of the people who are members of Indivisible groups are doing their own thing in their districts as part of Indivisible. We don't have connection to so best best estimate yeah, that I think part, is somewhat yeah. conservative is two to three million. And you have about how many groups? 5,000? Yeah, thousands 5, 000. of groups, literally in every congressional district in the country. And so. the Bay Area is one of the uh, the, <laughs> of the hotbeds. Uh, we have this conversation every time we, have we talk. We good yeah. coverage in the Bay Area. Yes, yes like, we I mean, do. 200 <laughs> groups in, across six congressional districts is one of the last estimates I think I I'd have. Yeah, I'd have to look. That doesn't surprise me. I remember hearing a story early on of the San Francisco groups having to have a waiting list to get into the mm-hmm. meetings because they just didn't have room for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I think it is important to be organized organizing in places like San Francisco, but it's also important to be organizing in places we've been underinvesting in progressive infrastructure. So the rural and red areas, places where Trump may have won by 60 or 70 percent, mm-hmm. what we found is there are still large numbers of people who don't want Trump's agenda and right. wanted to organize against it. Let's talk. Let's uh, talk 2020 now and, and, and the way forward, which yep. is about uh, what you're all about here. Mm-hmm. First of all, you think President Trump is a good shot of being reelected? 
Absolutely, he's got a good shot at being reelected. Look, we're losing right up until we win for this one. Um, nobody should discount at all the very real possibility that Donald Trump is going to win re-election, either with popular vote or through another electoral college victory. Um, we have to absolutely take that seriously and be working really, really hard to prevent it. That said, we also shouldn't credit him with magical powers. He's you know, not some <laughs> unique political genius. He is a wackadoodle who happens to be the president of the United States. Okay. The... Uh... What and what? Let's talk about impeachment too. What you know with the impeachment hearings when we're recording this yeah. are going to be starting in a couple of days. Yeah. What does that do for the energy on the ground and all the 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 individual places around the country, indivisible places around the country? Um, does that does that we? You know, I'm, I'm actually working on the story where uh, you know we we know we have a good idea of how this story is going to go. You know, the impeachment the, in the Democratic-led House, there'll, there'll be charges brought. Uh, the Republican-led Senate is going to say, no, forget it. We're not going to remove the president. And then we move on. Uh, does that does that move people on the ground either way? Does that increase energy for Democrats? Does that like does that depress them? Does it make them pissed off? What, what is that? What does it do? Well, I think the absolutely critical thing about moving forward on impeachment is that it's fundamentally delivering on the promise of democratic accountability that was a huge part of the blue wave. For the first two years, Trump got away with any number of shocking abuses of the government and nothing was done about it. And now we actually have the power and the ability to move forward. So from what I hear from activists, um, there's a sense of there's a sense of satisfaction that Democrats are actually taking action and they are moving to hold the president accountable. There is um, there is the, the kind of happiness and the kind of engagement that comes with understanding that your your work contributed to something more important. Uh, and, and there's continued engagement. So we are seeing uh, major protests around the country in support of impeachment, having people's back, having Democrats' backs in some states or in Democratic districts, pushing Republicans in Republican districts. We're also seeing people get ready to push their Republican senators. So our team, or our Indivisible as a movement, has driven over 400,000 calls into the states of Republican senators who are vulnerable to in, in their reelection battles in 2020, urging them to stand up on impeachment. And, we and that's are, just in the last couple months. That's just in the, oh, last, no, that's in the last few weeks. That's oh, in just last, in the last yeah. few weeks. So yeah. since mm -hmm. October or, or? Since since October. So we launched yeah. a campaign to make one million calls to voter or to progressive voters in the states that are held by or that are currently represented by vulnerable Republicans mm -hmm. to urge them to commit to a fair and transparent trial. And, you know, what the goal there is not necessarily that they're going to ultimately do it, but that they're going to understand that they are going to be in between a rock and a hard place as they have to consider whether to split from Trump or whether to uh, support and, uh, support him and enable him further. And so, this is look, so impeachment is the right thing to do because Trump has committed impeachable crimes. But politically, if we're just talking about the political impact here, think about this. Trump is underwater. When you look at his approval rating, he is underwater in Iowa, in Colorado, in Arizona, in North Carolina, in Montana. Montana. He's even in Alaska. These are all states where there are Republican senators who are running for re-election next year, which means if the House impeaches, there will be a trial in the Senate, and these Republican senators are going to be faced with a choice. They can shield this unpopular president as they're asking for votes from their constituents, or they can vote to convict and then demobilize their base. That is a choice I think these Republican senators should have to face. And I think it helps those of us combating Trump that they have to face that choice. Now, if the let's say the Senate, uh, you know, as expected, does not uh, vote to convict, yeah. does that take the air out of the Democrats below? I mean, if the people on the ground, we don't care about the senators, we, the, the people, the your people on yeah. the ground, they're like, oh, 
Well, it energizes those folks in Iowa it, and North Carolina and Maine who are – I mean we have indivisible groups in all of these states and they would love to see the Republican senators stand up. But if they don't, they are going to march all the way to November and ensure that they aren't senators in 2021. And I think everybody's pretty clear that we're not expecting Mitch McConnell to huh. get, offer a fair and transparent trial. People yeah. understand that when it goes to the Senate, it's going to be him doing everything that he can to mm-hmm. you know to get Trump off. And and so people aren't expecting the Senate trial is going to be um, some magical moment when we actually get him out of office necessarily. But they are expecting that it's a moment when Republicans either have to be brave or they have to uh, reveal who they really are. I want to ask you guys about the post-Trump world. Are we going to do that? right after a short break. I'm back with Leah Greenberg and Ezra Levin, and they are the co-founders of Indivisible. Let's talk about some of the things you uh, want, you know, sort of in a post-Trump world. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's what the book Pres- is presuming, about. Yeah. Presuming, yeah, what the book is about. Um, some of the things that you talk about are uh, the filibuster. Yeah. You talk mm-hmm. about uh, automatic voter registration, uh, combating the gerrymandering of congressional districts, eliminating the Electoral College. Why are these things, do you think, uh, important? So I would say, you know, our Democratic, small D Democratic House is on fire right now. Mm-hmm. And so we were looking at what can be done in 15 months. In 15 months, we could be looking at a pro-democracy president, a pro-democracy Congress. So what can you pass to save democracy? And this is presuming a, a Democratic sweep of all three. So half the book is about how you build the power in order to win in 2020, and the other half is about how you then use that power to enact these reforms. That's right. There is no pathway to any sort of substantial democratic reforms that doesn't go through President Trump becoming former President Trump and Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell becoming either no longer a senator or at least no longer the majority leader. Mm -hmm. You need a democratic trifecta in order to get any of this done. And we know that because Mitch McConnell right now, this year, has been standing on the floor of the U.S. Senate calling voting rights in D.C. statehood and election security socialism and a power grab. So we know that he will do everything in his power to stop this from happening. But we also know these are things that a simple majority vote in Congress and a simple signature from a pro-democracy president could sign into law. We could make D.C estate. We could massively expand the vote. We could end gerrymandering. We could make competitive districts. We could tackle campaign finance reform. We could invest in local media so that we could have more podcasts like this all over the country. That <laughs> is competition. Possible. Come on, right. <laughs> Even you, even you might benefit from this. <laughs> so Think about that. i waiting for my yeah. kickback on this. <laughs> That's right. All, But the point being, I, I'm not talking about constitutional amendments here. That's not what we're talking about. I would love to pass a constitutional amendment in 2021. It's not in the cards. But simple legislation is in the cards. And the way you do that is first you get rid of the filibuster and then you can pass stuff through the House and the Senate. So this, these aren't sort of kitchen table issues that we hear about people yeah. talking about. Like this isn't about health care or, or, you know, or, or, or mm-hmm. free college tuition or, or college debt relief or whatever. Mm-hmm. Why is that? Well, we think we've got this fundamental problem, which is that when Democrats take office, they try to act on their top policy issue that changes people's lives. And when Republicans take office, they change the rules so that they can stay in power and then they go after whatever policy issues Democrats were trying to move the last time. That's what we've seen with the Affordable Care Act Mm -hmm. most recently. And fundamentally, we're not going to get out of that cycle. And if we keep playing by the same rules, we actually have to change the rules so that we're actually reinforcing a pro-democracy agenda. Because... This is a problem that's a lot deeper than Trump, and that's really the core point of this book. 
in a healthy democratic society, Trump would have been rejected the same way that a healthy body rejects a virus. And that didn't happen. And so we actually have to look at why that didn't happen. And the reality is that it's because there's been a broader attack on our democracy that's been going on for a really long time, led by a core of reactionary Republican elites who've been doing everything they can to rig the rules to stay in power. And so this is about how to unrig. But do you think that is that going to be a harder sell? Like, let's let's get rid of the filibuster. (laughs) I mean, that's like, you know. I don't know if uh, most people don't know what the hell a filibuster is. We didn't land on this issue just by having since we didn't pick it out of a hat. We actually pulled our groups. We asked that was was from. Yes. What do you want to focus on? And they care about everything, as you can imagine, a a distributed network of millions of people. They care about health care and climate and immigration and taxes, you name it. But when we ask them to prioritize, their number one priority is democracy reform. That's the number one priority. And it's because most indivisible members didn't come from the climate space or the healthcare space or the tax space. They got involved because they thought democracy itself was crumbling because Mm. Donald Trump was in office. Now, I think there will be disagreements about the social and economic reforms we need to pass. That's absolutely going to happen. But when we look at democracy reform, it's actually somewhat ideologically wacky. It's not just the lefties or just the centrists who are pushing forward on democracy reform. Look at the presidential primary right now. The two leading candidates right now on democracy reform, we hope they're all going to get there. But the two leading ones right now are Elizabeth Warren and Pete Buttigieg, Mm -hmm. who are not ideologically the same. They occupy different spaces of the ideological spectrum. But you have Pete Buttigieg out there talking about the need to expand the court and reform the court. You have Elizabeth Warren out there saying that her number one priority is anti-corruption and pro-democracy work. This is and eliminating some, the filibuster and eliminating the filibuster to get yeah. it done, which yeah. everybody recognizes who's actually looked at this and being honest that there's literally no way to get this done unless you eliminate the filibuster. But so we actually see this as a possibility regardless of who wins the presidential primary. And we also see this as being popular among Republicans and independents. We saw that in Florida in 2018, where the same year that they elected a Republican governor, a Republican senator, and a Republican state legislature, Floridians voted in overwhelming majority, a supermajority, to enfranchise more Americans than had been franchised since the Voting Rights Act of 1965. people who are felons. That's, yeah, yeah formerly incarcerated. Yeah, yes, that, that's, that's, that's correct. Yeah. The other thing that I would add about uh, the filibuster, for example, is we're not going around talking about the filibuster because we just really hate the filibuster. Mm -hmm. We're going around talking about the filibuster because it blocks the things we really care about. Mm -hmm. So the reason we don't have sensible gun violence prevention legislation in this country is because of the filibuster. Mm -hmm. The reason that we don't have a public option on our health care right now is because of the filibuster. We don't want to make the same mistake that we made in 2008 of saying that if we can't get 60 votes, we're not going to do anything. And that's why we're talking about it now. And now you, you alluded to a couple of 2020 candidates. Have you met with any of the candidates? Have they reached out to you or you reached out to them? Yeah, or? our teams are in regular uh, communication with the candidates. We actually have- well, a, All of them? Um, just oh, about all, the, all the of them. Ones, just yeah. about all of them. Not I mean, Trump. Yeah, I mean- not, not Trump's team Trump hasn't not. returned our calls, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> I don't know why. So no, we have a, something, called, we have something called the Indivisible Pledge that we that we released earlier this year. And this was our first foray into the presidential primary process. Mm-hmm. The, the pledge had three- components. One, you're going to engage in a constructive primary. Two, regardless of who wins, you're going to endorse them. And three, you are going to put yourself at the disposal of the winning campaign. We've got 16 weeks between the Democratic National Convention and the election. Every single week, you are going to do what you need to do uh, for the winning campaign to make sure Donald Trump is the next president. Now, on the last debate stage, there were 12 candidates. 10 of them had signed that pledge. The -hmm. only two exceptions were Gabbard and Yang. Yang has separately said he's not going to run as a third party candidate. Gabbard just isn't responding. And I don't know what's going on there. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's see. Yeah. We'll see. Yes. She, she and she will be on the next debate stage in November. Indeed. Um, how is the the um, 
Oh, oh, by the way, one more thing on the 2020 candidates. Are you guys going to endorse? Because you endorsed candidates last time. Are you going to endorse the presidential? I mean, in the in the midterms you did. Are you going to endorse yeah. in the presidential? So we're in conversations with yeah. the indivisible leaders across the network around that prospect, around what are the pros and cons of an endorsement? Um, yeah. What would it look like if it were to happen? What we've always said is that if we were to make an endorsement, it would need to reflect the real and meaningful support of the indivisible movement for a candidate. So the bottom line question for us is first determining, is that support there for one specific candidate? Mm-hmm. And, and individual groups are free. I mean, you're, yep. as you alluded sure. to earlier, everyone's very autonomous. So if they want to endorse someone, they can. That's Absolutely. right. Yep. Um, what? How's the landscape changed? Do you think, in terms of uh, organizing, or you know, and, and grassroots organizing, and, and and sort of civic engagement in general, since you guys started this? Do you, if things totally changed? I know that obviously we saw the results from the uh, with with your help on the uh, on the uh, stopping the uh, the end of Obamacare. We saw it in the midterms. Since the midterms, what have you seen? So I think the natural trajectory for any social movement is you get a big spike and that's when it gets built up and then it slowly fades into irrelevance because naturally individual activism wanes. That's what happens. You uh, uh, you get a, a new job, you move, you have kids, whatever happens, life happens yep. and you stop staying engaged. I think from our point of view, what we've seen is Indivisible is not a movement of individuals. It's a movement of groups. Our unit of activism is the, the group. So what we've seen over time is we got obviously a big spike in uh, December, January, February of 27, uh, 2016, 2017. And then other things would happen that would pull more people in. There would be a Betsy DeVos vote. There would be a – can you remember that? It feels like decades My ago. God, that, yeah. feels like, that feels like 10 years ago. <laughs> exactly. Well, so Betsy DeVos gets a vote. And then we have the fight over health care. And then we have the fight over DACA. And then we have the fight over taxes. And for each of these fights – you know, most of the time, most people are not paying attention. But for each of these fights, you get some set of people who suddenly lift their heads up and they say, shoot, I want to do something on this. This really makes me mad. I want to get involved. And if you've got groups already on the ground that have been developing that infrastructure, you can pull those people in at that time. And that's what we've seen over the course of the last three years. It's not a direct trajectory up. It's spiky. So we had our single largest national day of action on January 3rd of this year in support of the For the People Act. That was two and a half years. The For the People Act is the pro-democracy bill that the House passed. That was two and a half years into our existence. We then broke that record again on the defund hate week of action, which was Mm. a fight against Trump's deportation machine. So in between those times, we had some other actions. There was the abortion bans. There were some other things that happened. But it wasn't just one constant trajectory from the movement. It was are we taking advantage of these movement moments? And I think that's why we're still talking to you three years later and we haven't faded into irrelevance and there's still groups everywhere engaged. I love there was one uh, uh, dig that uh, perhaps I only enjoyed in the book where you said that there was a, uh, a an aide to uh, – Senator Feinstein here Indeed. in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. I think it was at that rally too, and in, in in front of her offices, yes. and and uh, this person said, and I'm I, uh, I think I have an idea who this person is. I won't say <laughs> her name, but uh, I said you guys will be gone by St. Patrick's Day. Mm-hmm. Yep, 2017. Oh, yes. You're still around. I remember it vividly. So February 2017, oh, I yeah. believe it was, or in the early 2017. And if there's one thing you don't want to tell a crowd of indivisible groups, uh, it's hey, you're not going to be here pretty soon. Yeah, yeah, but the, the thing, Lee, I'm sorry I interrupted. What you, were, you were going to say something. Oh, I was going to say, if you're also looking around the country at the electoral results of the last week, what you see is yes. the same folks who've been showing up at these protests have also kept knocking doors. Because when you're looking at something like Virginia, where Democrats flipped the House of Delegates and the state Senate, running on maps that Republicans originally gerrymandered to guarantee their electoral dominance, 
there is continued enormous amounts of grassroots energy and investment going into each of those very local races in order to pull that off. And one thing I wanted to ask you about, which I, it, it struck me and uh, which I think applies to some of the, the individual groups I've, I've known and got to know around here and in uh, Southern California, Orange County and stuff. And you say, uh, this is lesson number nine, don't get defensive about your privilege. Um, explain what that means when you when you talk about privilege, because I always we often talk about that on the podcast about how people should, you know, as we say, own their privilege. And how does that work with the work you're doing? Yeah. Well, so for the, us, a lot of this is about making sure that people are not paralyzed and that they're not defensive about what they're bringing to the work and that they're actually thinking about how to show up if they do come from a place of privilege, whether that's gender or race or socioeconomic status or ability. Um, however you come into the world, making sure that you're showing up for people who do not have those advantages in a way that's actually supporting them and supporting their leadership. Yeah. And so- Don't um, be white people bigfooting the situation. That's, that is one of the ways that that yes, shows up, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And so fundamentally, it's just about making sure that, um, you know, especially for us as relatively new activists on the space, we're always conscious that we're entering into spaces that other people have been organizing in for a long time, where directly impacted communities are organizing, where they hold the strategy and where we really want to be coming in in support of their leadership. Mm -hmm. And that's central to how we approach our own work at the national level and how we encourage groups around the country to approach their work at the local level. And the question that is in the back of many uh, Democrats' minds, what happens if Trump wins in 2020? So I think we're really at a crossroads. Do you write another book or what is it? <laughs> um, so I, I, the book is very hopeful mm -hmm. about the changes that we can make in 2021, but it doesn't mince words. It no, really it does not. focuses on the crossroads where we are right now as a country. Mm -hmm. In 15 months, we could be looking at a real representative democracy in this country that actually does represent the diversity of the electorate, or we could be on a path to permanent white plutocracy. And that's what's in front of us. And the reason why we wrote the book now was because we thought it was very, very important for us to not wind up down one of those paths. Mm -hmm. And the only answer to how do you how do you ensure that we travel down the path to representative democracy is if we build the movement for indivisible, we build the pro-democracy movement, and we ensure that people's sights are set not just on 2020, but on 2021. You'll mm -hmm. that Lee and I wrote this book. You'll note that our names aren't even on the cover. Yes, and I that, noticed that. that that was intentional. Also, every single dime of this book goes to Indivisible Safe Democracy Fund. We don't get a dime of it. And that's because this book is intended to grow the movement. This is for the indivisible movement. It's intended to take us down this path of actually passing representative democracy. Now, what happens if we don't? Really bad stuff happens. Mm -hmm. um, we, I don't know what the future of representative democracy is in this country. If Donald Trump wins re-election or if Mitch McConnell remains Senate Majority Leader, I think both of those are nightmare scenarios. And so we need to build this power now. It does not happen in October or November of 2020. It happens right now. The way we built the wave in 2018 was by building this power in 2017. The way we're going to win in 2020 and demand these reforms in 2021 is by if you've been on the sidelines, if you've just been listening to podcasts, as important as that is, now you are getting up off the sidelines and into the game because democracy is a participatory sport. Are you sport. concerned about the level of energy right now as we sit November 2019? Look at the election Not results on you're, Tuesday. You're feeling confident. I'm feeling still, good. Okay, okay. And, and no. also, like Leah said at the beginning of this, we're losing right up until we win. All right. Leah Greenberg, 
as well. And thank you so much. It's great to finally meet you in person, yeah. both of you. Thank and uh, congratulations on the book. It is Indivisible, a blueprint for democracy after Trump. Thank you for being on It's All Political. Thanks for having us thank again. Thank you. I'd like to thank you all for listening today. I'd like to thank Leah and Ezra for coming here to San Francisco to be on the podcast. I'd like to thank the king, King Kaufman, for producing this podcast, along with the great one, Karen Creighton. And remember, whether you're a small D Democrat or a big P plutocrat, it's all political. It's all political as part of the San Francisco Chronicle podcast network. Audrey Cooper is our editor-in-chief. Our music, our theme music that we have is Cattle Call. That's written by Randy Clark and performed by Randy Clark and Crow Song. If you like this show, subscribe, rate, and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. For more great journalism like this, subscribe to the San Francisco Chronicle at sanfranciscochronicle.com slash subscribe. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Garofoli. Thanks.